Thank you, Rick. I appreciate you doing that for us. Good morning, everybody. Happy New Year, officially. I think the last time we were together, it wasn't quite New Year's. We were anticipating all that was lying ahead and uh, expecting all great things. How's that working out so far? A couple weeks in? You don't know how bad I want to take a poll. Like, how many of you already broke your resolution? Anyway, I won't. Let's not do that. But I hope you're feeling refreshed from a busy holiday season. I know that for me, it comes and goes. I mostly feel tired these days, but that's because uh, when I get out of routine and when we get a sense that you got to be somewhere and all that sort of stuff and things just change, it just takes a little bit out of you. Uh, so I am sometimes my own worst enemy when it comes to that sort of thing. So I look forward to, I've been telling some people, this is feeling like New Year's to me. About two weeks in, because our family's holiday stuff stre- uh, spreads out and stretches out and things, and so now it's New Year, and that's now I can get into my routine. So maybe I'll find some rest then, don't know. But if you're, uh, if you're here today and you're still a little bit kind of feeling the fatigue of the holidays and the busyness of the New Year, you're in good company. I meant to bring a tennis ball with me because uh, a story I came across last week was how a professor would come into his classroom and set a tennis ball out on his lectern. And for days in a row, his new class uh, participants were like, what is he doing that for? He'd reach into his tweed jacket and set it on his lectern and just walk around and continue with the lesson. Everyone said, it must be one of those quirky, eccentric habits that the brilliant have or something like that. And as he saw someone doze off in his class, without skipping a beat, without breaking his stride, without any hesitation in his words, he just made his way back to his lectern, and with the skill of a Major League Baseball pitcher, he beamed that student right off the forehead. Everyone's like, oh, that's what the tennis ball's for. The next day he comes and puts a baseball on the lectern. Steve's sitting there as a professor. He's going, okay, thanks for the tip. You probably already do something like this, although expect yours to be like a football or something, Steve. So, uh, Anyway, I don't think he had any trouble with students falling asleep in his class anymore. Uh, we are coming into a text this morning in Acts chapter 20 that talks about a very real and physical situation of a, of a young man actually falling asleep in the midst of preaching. That's why this illustration was what it was. Before we get there, there's some uh, itinerary information that Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, is giving us about Paul's journeys. And so the, the crux of where we're going to be is around this sleeping situation and this young man falling out of a window, literally, to his death. Um, but before we get there, in the great cliffhanging fashion that I choose to offer to you, we're going to look at some of this traveling itinerary for just a minute. This isn't the bulk of our... Uh, text, but we are going to see it because it's it's quite possible and quite common for us to fall asleep in this world. Now, of course, I'm not just talking about physically as we dro- doze off and drift off and things, but spiritually speaking, there are so many things that deaden our senses that kind of make us lethargic and kind of help, help us to feel too comfortable with the circumstances. Every once in a while, an alarm bell goes off and kind of catches our attention, but then... Hmm, kind of settled back in, and that was alarming for a moment, but then we settled back in. So Paul, before he gets into the circumstance of this young man falling asleep in his 
sermon, just laying it out there, that's what's going on. So I'm just giving you the warning. If, if you're prone to fall asleep in church, today is not the day. Just letting you know. I don't have a baseball, but you will be the subject of the message through the whole thing. I was talking to some of the students that we hadn't seen over the Christmas break, and one of my first questions to several of them was, did you get any rest? Because when they come through the doors, I often, they'll back me up on this, right, guys? I often give you permission to doze off if you have to. You get very grueling, rigorous uh, study schedules and things. So I say, look, I won't be offended. Most of them are right in front of me. Kind of hard for me to miss. So I won't be offended if you drift off. So far, I don't think any of them have taken me up on that on that get out of jail free card. But anyway, they have that license. So I asked some of them, I said, did you get rest on the holiday break? And, and one of them uh, said that she got a 14 hour um, sleep in one day. Her parents were wondering how in the world, like what did, what's going on here? And so she had to really recharge. I wouldn't admit who that person was, Hey Jung, to uh, say that um, <laughs> that she needed 14 hours. Anyway, I get it. I'll never be forgiven for that. All right. To our text, Acts chapter 20, beginning verse 1. After the uproar ceased, now we have to kind of brush some dust off a little bit. The uproar was when the disciples were being dragged in front of the angry crowd. And they were the angry crowd was stirred up by some uh, silversmiths who were like, hey, our trinket business for our little phony gods, they didn't call them phony, but our little phony gods is is tanking because Paul is preaching this gospel saying that that fake little trinket gods are not real gods. And so it was starting to impact their industry in a negative way because the gospel was spreading uh, at such a rapid rate. And so it worked the crowd up into a frenzy. This mob mentality took over and they were freaking out, probably going to do some incredible damage to these um, uh, followers of Christ until like kind of governmental structure or meeting rules kind of came in and they were like, um, we're kind of guilty of um, uh, an insurrection here and a riot and stuff. We have to Put away with this nonsense. If you have a complaint, put it in the suggestion box and we'll figure it out. And then just like that, it was over. Strangest thing. So after the uproar had ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. And after encouraging them, he said, farewell and departed from Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months. And when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopper to the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. <clears throat> now, I'm not just reading this text because we have to. Because we're moving in sequential order, although we do that here. But I think it's interesting to extract just a couple of thoughts to help us set the stage for what's about to happen. And that is that Paul is going on a farewell tour. Now, we've come across farewell tours. Some of our favorite bands eventually uh, retire and stuff. If you're a Rolling Stones fan, I feel sorry for you. They'll never be done. I think they've retired 20 years ago and someone just kept them in formaldehyde and they're still touring. But these bands and these athletes and everything, they announced to the world, we're wrapping it up. Why would they do that? 
ticket sales, adulation, all this kind of, it hypes things up. This wouldn't be Paul's motivation though, would it? If we've seen too much of his character that he's not necessarily getting the word out there that, hey, I'm doing my last hurrah so that you can come out in droves and be, but this is what's happening. Paul is motivated by something deeper than accolades and personal attention and all the thank yous that those that have uh, endeared themselves to him and have loved his ministry would want to give him. Paul is motivated by care and love for the church. He knows what he's moving towards. He knows why he's having to start saying goodbye to his followers because the end for him isn't pretty. He's not ripe in his old age and he can't just keep going on anymore. There's something kind of darker at play as far as the world and the, and the devil is concerned here. So Paul knows that this might be the last time I see a lot of these people. And so he's planning his trip and he's, he's going uh, this way because of his care and his love for them. He had told the Corinthians that as an apostle of Jesus Christ, he was carrying such tremendous burdens for very specific reasons. And he says, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. And he says, listen, think about it. Take some inventory amongst yourselves. Who of you has been weak and I'm not weak with you? When I hear you're struggling, don't I struggle with you? Who's made to fall? Who's been tempted or tricked? And I don't become indignant at the enemy for, for having done that to you. He says, I carry the burden of love and desire for my churches. He's got a shepherd's heart. And so desperately wanting to spend just a little bit more time with them to build them up, to encourage them, to share that, those final meals together is close to Paul's heart. So he wants to encourage them in faithfulness, but he's also got a very practical reason for needing to go the places he's going. He has elicited a, a giving response to the church in Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is getting ransacked with persecution. So because of that, they've taken a hit in their livelihoods. They've had a hard time raising funds. They can't necessarily afford all of the life that they used to have and stuff. So Paul says, I want to take care of the church in Jerusalem who's getting hit harder than anybody else with persecution. So I'm going to travel around. I'm going to give them a heads up. We studied this when we were in 2 Corinthians together. He gave them plenty of heads up and he, and he set the, the stage for, we want you to start preparing for this. I'm going to be coming with a troop. This is all the names that we just saw in this paragraph. Representatives from all these different churches so that the, the funds were handled carefully. It was probably a large amount we were talking about that was coming together. And so rather than Paul just leaning on them saying, you trust me with all that money, right? He says, no, I'm going to bring all these different representatives from the churches so they know what they raised gets to where it needs to go. So very practically, he wants to meet the needs of the Jerusalem church. But spiritually speaking, or, or leadership-wise, he wants to support the Jews where the gospel started. And he wants to do it with Gentile dollars. Because what did he tell us? He said, there's no longer Jew nor Greek. There's no longer male nor female. There's no, neither bond nor free. He says, all of us are one in Christ. Now you've been blessed, I'm sure, along the way by somebody who's given you a financial gift. And doesn't that speak your love language? It's like, I don't care. Money is like this universal language here. I want to bless you with this. And all of a sudden there's this like endearing quality that that person might've been someone you didn't think much of before or whatever, but now all of a sudden they're entering into your need or want to bless you with opportunity and it, and it breaks some barriers down. It melts some ice. So how much more so in this formation of the gospel spreading, does this church in Jerusalem need to feel the tangible love of the saints from around the area, especially while they're suffering persecution? 
You can see why Paul had his eyes fixed on getting to Jerusalem. He had his laser beam set. So even if the plans thwarted or he heard about some attacks from the the religious leaders and plots and schemes and things, he says, I'll go a different way. I've got to get to them. Even if I don't make it in my, my original time schedule, I've got to get to them. And he's motivated because he knows his time is short. In the second part of this chapter, we won't get to today. Verse 22, he says, And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except, and this is a big except, that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. He knows this is a farewell tour. He's telling them, We're not going to get a lot of opportunity to do this. So all of that sets the stage for this incredible opportunity to have Paul stay with us so that we can spend the time with him. We can break the food out. We can have fellowship well into the night. And that leads to this temporary tragedy. So we pick up in verse 7. On the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them intending to depart on the next day. So they got one more night with him. And he prolonged his speech until midnight no jokes about long-winded preachers there there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered and a young man named Eutychus sitting at the window sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer still no jokes about long-winded preachers and being overcome by sleep he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead but Paul went down and bent over him and Taking him up in his arms, he said, don't be alarmed. This, his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he over, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. Like I said, this is a very normal circumstance. Paul was speaking for a long time. There's probably a lot of dialogue that goes on in that teaching environment. It wasn't like he just had 80 points to his sermon and they just had to sit there and listen. He probably had a lot of information, was probably digging deep into their minds with the doctrine of Jesus Christ because he knew my time is coming short. I can't stay. And I'm sure they were a willing audience. I'm sure they were like, it's great that he's here. We've wanted to be, you know, at his feet for a long time. I'm sure they brought out a giant meal. And so they had just finished that. This was a work day for them, even though for us, we consider the first day of the week our Sabbath on a Sunday we come to church. For them, their Sabbath would have been Saturday. So they're coming, to, they're coming together on a, on the, on the, at the end of a long work day. So they've worked hard, filled up their bellies, Probably got a little overexcited that they were finally able to sit and, and, and meet with him. And sometimes that biology of things just kicks in. And this poor young man, we don't know how old he was, late teens or so is what the speculation is. It started sinking in with him a little bit. Luke even says there were a lot of lamps going. It was just that environment, you know, comfortable. This is great. I got to hear him talk and everything and like that. Third story window. It's like a cartoon. It's kind of understandable, don't you think? Probably not a knock on this poor kid's spiritual character that he couldn't stay awake till midnight to hear all of these things that were, some of them I'm sure were over his head. That's just the nature of it. It happens. We get in an environment like this, gets a little comfortable, gets a little quiet. Someone went and put padding on the chairs. 
I was just holding my grandson, and as his mom sang, all the fidgeting just stopped. And he was like, yeah, this is great. All right. This is who we are, right? We're that little infant is just like, ah, finally. It happens. It sets in, and it has. A, we have a difficult schedule, perhaps. We work all different hours, or we study all hours of the night, or we um, uh, have busy home lives and all these things. And when we come into an environment like this, we can finally stop and breathe and unplug. And it probably has nothing to do with how boring the speaker is, though, right? Okay. Um, <laughs> I get it. So I've, I have a lot of kids and I've put all of them to sleep on a car ride just trying to talk to them and hey, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, like boring dad. I get it. So what we're going to talk about is more what this message, what this um, topic or event leads us into to think about spiritually because these things do happen on a physical level. We fall asleep. And I was sitting there taking some inventory. Remember, I had a couple weeks to prepare this message. And um, so I had a little extra time. And so I was like, boy, if that happened in our midst, what could we do about it? Paul ran down, said, hold communion. We'll be back here in a second. Like in faith, you knew this is a temporary problem. And like the prophet Elijah, he just lays himself over the child and he says, hey, don't worry. I'm getting a heartbeat. I'm getting Paul's breaths coming back. He's fine. So he was on top of things. If you fall asleep and fall out of your chair and, you know, something like that, don't expect that here. I was taking an inventory of the kind of like what we could do as a leadership here at at faith, who you have available to you to get you out of such a jam. Permit me just a little ridiculousness here for a second. I was looking through my my elder list. I was like, what could we do about it? I got a large team here of elders, very faithful, as you heard uh, from Rick already this morning. Uh, Ron Dunbar, who is our usual uh, master behind the buttons in the back. He could put a mic up to your chest to see if there's any signs of vitality. Um, Floyd could assess the functionality of your internal operational function. I don't know what any of that means, but I know he does really smart computer stuff. I was like, I can just throw a bunch of those words out there and that'll just to determine if your system's operating. If that's looking bleak, Gus could wire up a jump start, I'm sure. If that doesn't work, then Dr. Parody could... Even though he's an eye doctor, he could still, I'm sure, pronounce you gone. (laughs) Don Cole, who is a whiz with a chainsaw and knows his way around wood, I'm sure could come up with a pine box for us. I know, this is getting really dark, isn't it? Mike Phillips, as you know, could execute your last will and testament. Rick, as you heard from this morning, and also Tim Valentine, I think would perform an outstanding funeral service for you. Uh, Tim Corbett, if you happen to have any military background, would help with military honors, help your family seek out the right benefits, all that kind of stuff. Jim Higgs, who is a great uh, distribution guy, would make sure all your belongings get to where they're supposed to be afterwards. But to, to just lay over you and say, they're back, I don't think you get that option here. So that's why we say these are stories that took place at a time for a reason. Let's not uh, bank on the fact that, yeah, it's fine if I just drift off. I'm sure someone will be able to take care of it. All right. Beyond the silly, what is the scripture really talking about here? There's a warning in this. I don't think Luke is just recording it to kind of say, isn't that crazy what happened that night of their worship time? Uh, Isn't that amazing what Paul was able to do? He seems to kind of jump right over the fact that Paul was like, yeah, he's dead. Uh, Not anymore. You know, there was an actual resuscitation that happened here, a coming back to life because the scripture says they took him up dead. It wasn't just a misunderstanding. 
I think there's a greater warning here and a metaphor that we can uh, see in this, that there is a major paralysis when you and I fall asleep, spiritually speaking. When you, are, when you and I are unawakened to the glory and the greatness of God, and it no longer moves us or maybe never stirred us, it's far more serious resulting in our spiritual death than just a slight embarrassment of a head nod in church or needing to be nudged by our spouses. There is a major paralysis that takes place here. And when the scripture talks about sleep and slumber, it's usually in very sobering tones. Peter told us to be sober-minded and to be watchful because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. If you go to the zoo and you look at roaring lions on the other side of the fence, it's very relaxing. It's enjoyable. It's, it's awe-inspiring. And you're like, what amazing creatures. You remove that fence and that barrier, now all of a sudden there's nothing fun or lighthearted about it, right? You're in a stare down and you're like, how long do I have? What move do I make? What am I supposed to do? You start going through all the things that you heard on like TikTok or something, you know? Or do I play dead or I get bigger or that I do? What am, what am I supposed to do here? It gets serious when you're in the presence of a roaring lion and there's no barrier to protect you. And yet we so often sleep through those moments thinking, oh, I'm sure there's a fence there somewhere. I'm sure there's somebody with a trank gun that can put them down for me. This is what spiritual slumber starts to lull us into. Where it's like that time when you know you need to move quickly and you get up and you don't realize your leg's been in the same position for far too long and it's asleep. And what you needed to do, you can no longer do because you were stuck and paralyzed in a position for far too long. The warning here is much more severe than slight embarrassment. <clears throat> Thessalonians tells us, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. We sang about this already this morning, about being ready, about being alert, about being uh, uh, engaged in looking for his return. While people are saying there's peace and security, while that fence is between me and that roaring lion then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you're not in darkness, brothers, for that day <clears throat> to surprise you like a thief. For you're all children of light, children of the day. We're not of the night nor of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. I'm reminded of that little line, that little lie, I should say, right in the heart of Stairway to Heaven, a song by Led Zeppelin that says, there are two paths you can go by, but in the long run, there's still time to change the road you're on. And isn't that the mindset of our culture? Isn't that what you and I would want to believe is that I can do what I want now. And if I'm aware, <clears throat> I'm really sorry about the frogginess here. If I'm aware about what my options are down the road, I'll have time to choose that. I have time to get these things right because right now I'm a little distracted. Right now I'm a little sleepy. I'm a little drifty and stuff, but I'll, I'm sure I'll take this seriously. It's interesting, the timing of this, right? Because didn't we kind of look at our calendar flip as an opportunity to get so many things right that didn't go well in 2023? I'm sure next year will be better. I'm sure I'll get more on top of my game for these things. This is what we do. We crave and count on a do-over, and we think it's just waiting for us as soon as we start getting ready for it. But a great error occurs when you believe 
that there will always be time to change your mind. We're not guaranteed that opportunity. We're not told that we can keep uh, burying ourselves and putting our, our heads under the blankets and that the Lord will always just be so patient and waiting for us that one day when we decide to wake up, he'll be there waiting for us. We're not told that. <clears throat> Perhaps you're asleep because you've never been awakened. As I said, the language of Scripture is sobering. It talks in terms of death, that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. <clears throat> we're not just lethargic. We're like that young man who's completely knocked out. <clears throat> I got to work on this. Give me a second. Talk amongst yourselves. I'll give you a topic. <clears throat> Try it for a little bit longer. What he represents for us by actually falling asleep, actually falling out the window and actually waking up dead is that reminder to us that when we're asleep, spiritually speaking, when we've never been awakened by the Holy Spirit because we've looked at the things of God from a distance or maybe we've just um, uh, equated it to going to church that that's putting in our religious time, or maybe I'm getting that person off my back who really wants me to be there, and it's just a distant thing for me. But in terms of things of the Spirit or things of the glory of God, it hasn't quite personally stirred me ever. There's a danger in that. We talked about the foolish man from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Remember, he said there's a wise man and a foolish man. Similarities are that they both built a house. They built a house uh, in different locations. And they both experienced the same wind and storms and floods and all that stuff came to the same men. Whether they were wise or foolish, they experienced those same challenges and testings and sufferings. The differences were that one man's house stood and the other washed away with the storm. But the, the little tiny clue in that um, parable that Jesus gives is that they were both in the audience. They both heard the truth. They both knew what God had for them and expected of them. Only one did. The other did not. And so that uh, that house washed away with the storm because it was built on the sand. And this is the challenge of those who have never been awakened. They can say, well, I had an alarm clock in my room. I just never turned it on. I just never listened to it while it was going off. That doesn't get us through. It doesn't get us by on the day of judgment. When we come before the Lord, we aren't going to be able to say, well, look, I knew where you were. I knew you existed. I knew where the church people were. I knew the address on KMD. I, I knew some of the music. Pastor was completely boring, put us all to sleep. But other than that, I knew all those things. That won't be enough. Paul warns, working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. This is such a danger to be so close, to be in the audience of it, to, to, to be somewhat um, pricked in your mind to be able to think, well, maybe there's some truth to this, but never internalizing it. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you and in a day of salvation, I've helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. But it's comfy in this bed. I got three or four layers of blankets. There's heat in here. I know once I step out, any of you have a cold bedroom in the winter? It's like, man, it's really hard to get out of bed. That floor is going to be ice cold. Everything I put on is going to be cold and everything. So it just, it just encourages us, stay where you are. 
Even if you're like, man, that's, this is destructive on my life. I've got to get to work. I've got to get here. I've got to do this. I know, but isn't it nice in here? This is what we do, spiritually speaking. When we are asleep to the things of Christ, we just keep telling ourselves, I know what he wants from me. I know what he's calling me to do, but it's awfully cold outside of these blankets. You may recall I was saying that my daughter and I were listening to the Screwtape Letters, a C.S. Lewis classic, a short little book where Uncle Screwtape is one of the demons under Satan's control who is influencing, this is of course all fictitious, but um, he is influencing or training his nephew in the ways of deception so that people will stop turning to God and will end up joining them in hell. And he makes the point to his nephew, he says, don't you understand that the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the one where everything feels comfortable to your feet, the one where everything feels cozy, when, when we're comfortable, we don't need God. Nothing's uh, earth shattering. Nothing's waking us up to this reality of I am all alone in this and I need a savior. So he said, the best thing that we can do to win is to make it comfortable for them. Remember, I've said before that Satan could care less if you worship him or even believe he's real. He would rather you think he's fictitious. He'd rather you think everything's going fine without the Lord. So maybe you're just fully unconscious to the things of the Lord. Maybe sometimes you're, you're one foot in, one foot out. Maybe you haven't practiced a repentance that keeps you in line and in fellowship and relationship with the Lord. Or we could say it as some, maybe you're seldom repentant. Paul wasn't putting anyone to sleep. He wasn't just a long-winded, boring speaker. There was a lot to accomplish. There was back and forth, I'm sure. And it was a time of equipping. And those that knew that were down to business and serious about it, they were there with their intention, hoping to be able to hear everything he was saying. But, but sometimes, like I said, the, the biology of stuff is just like, hey, man, I'm full, I'm tired, I'm heavy. and everything. We can't fault this kid for not staying awake. But this is often how we approach our time amongst the saints. Depending on what you are desiring out of your walk with the Lord will help you answer some of these questions. Is our time in church for our comfort or is our time in church for our challenge? I find it interesting that some of the, I, I know I'm not a very like between the eyes and hard hitting, yelling, screaming type of person, but I found that the, the times where I've actually spent more time in those kinds of things, I've had more and more people come up to me and say, it's just what I needed today. And I commend them for that, for their faith of being saying, look, I came here to get challenged. I came here to get pushed and nudged in a direction. They know the time is short, that they know that what the Lord has for them to accomplish and what he wants to do in their life is so important. To not be comforted or coddled, but rather to be equipped. Paul is saying to them, he's warning them of coming persecution. He's saying, I know what awaits me, imprisonment, afflictions, but he's saying it in such a way that they know too, if it hap if it's happening to him, it's probably going to happen to them. What just happened in the previous chapter, right? Other names were swept up. Paul came running to try to take the, take the arrows for them. So they knew this isn't just a Paul problem. This is an us problem. What does it look like for us? What does it look like when the, the church of Jesus Christ in 2024 at 250 Kennedy Memorial Drive 
has certain persecutions that come. And I know that preachers do this, try to scare us into a frenzy and say, you know, you never know what you're going to face when you leave here and things. But let's be honest about this. Isn't this a great awakening for us to consider? What is God doing? What is he, what is he about to do in the area around us? So we were just, you know, we've, we've been enjoying the last couple of weeks now. We've been able to work with uh, Jeremy now in a full-time capacity as our outreach pastor. We've had Steve now in our midst helping us out with all the functions and things of the church and stuff. And it's like we just touched a couple of nerves in our community and already the Lord's like, here, I'm going to bless you with this. I'm going to um, put fruit in, in this uh, bowl over here and have you reach. And it's been going uh, incredibly well already to the extent that we're like, Lord, what are you about to do? Things that we can't even ask or imagine is how he shows up in uh, in his power and in his might. Are we ready for this? Do we anticipate that he's about to make us uncomfortable and lead us in different directions and, and challenge us? Sometimes we're seldom repentant and we don't come to the Lord and say, okay, Lord, my, 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 my vessel has got some grime in it. I need to be cleansed and cleaned for your use and your operation and and I haven't come to you for in a while, just kind of laying bare before you, saying, Lord, forgive me, search me, and know me, as the psalmist would say. See if there's any wicked way in me. We had our time of communion, not so that we can feel religious, right? Not so that we can check our box, but so that we can have that opportunity to come before the Lord and say, I just want to be used by you. And I know that the things I hang on to, the things I allow to own me, keep me from being effective for your name and for your glory. And that's what I want more than anything else. Maybe some of you are in the same boat that I'm in where I feel like I've been around this environment my entire life. I started going to church when I was eight or nine years old. And so in, for all practical purposes, that feels like my entire life. I remember being this little kid <clears throat> on the back pew that my mom would bring just her and I sometimes or my sister would come and stuff. And we'd be in the back pew of East Auburn Baptist Church. Maybe some of you know that church, a great and growing church in Auburn. And at the time, it was just a little small place with hard pews. And I remember being in the back row, kind of laying around, looking at the ceiling, doing what kids do sometimes when they're like, I can't believe I got to be here. And then the pastor at the time, <clears throat> uh, Renzel or Renzo, I can't remember, uh, he had one of, this is how kids remember things. He had one of these voices that was just so, I'm like, mm-hmm. I remember that phrase, you know, in all the wonders of the world. And that was like the last phrase I'd always hear. I've been around this forever. And I'm challenged often with, Lord, where's the thrill in this? Everything sometimes seems so routine. Can I be honest and bear before you with this? I feel sometimes like that train ticket salesman who is happy to give people all their passes to go to amazing places he's never been before. He, he interviews all the people that come and go and says, how was your trip? What did you see? And he's been doing it for so long that he's able to describe everybody else's experiences, but he's never taken that and said, I'm going to go on a holiday and go do it myself. This is the problem with being too familiar with the routine of this religious structure or life in Christ. That all that he has for his children and the places he wants to lead us, we don't um, allow ourselves to go. We don't step out on faith and say, okay, Lord, you lead and I will follow. 
What level of slumber are you most tempted by or stuck in? Do you have an honest assessment with where you're at? Are you one who is fully asleep? And you say, to be honest with you, I feel a lot like I'm just kind of playing the game. I'm here for somebody else more than me, or I don't quite get what's going on here. I know that there's a lot of stuff about Jesus and things, but I don't know what you're talking about with this personal savior business. I don't know what it means to really surrender my life and follow him. Please hear me that there's more at risk than slight embarrassment for just nodding off in church. Jesus warned in his sermon, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day many will say to me, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? These aren't strangers to the works of God. They aren't unfamiliar with his name. They were doing all of these things in his name. And yet I will declare to them the scariest phrase, I think, to all people who read the scriptures, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. In order to make a hopeful connection, because here's what I find. I find that the people that are walking with the Lord so humbly, they're the ones that get the most freaked out about this passage. They're the ones that say, I don't want that to be me. I I don't want to be the one who misses it. I don't want to be the one who thinks I'm doing things to the Lord in his name and then not. It's like, well, if you're that freaked out, then that means the presence of the spirit is causing you to care about those things. There's a warning here to the deadness, the one who says, yeah, I can play along. I can do enough to fool the crowd. I can do enough to make people think I care about all this business, but it's not really, it doesn't move me. It doesn't change me. You see, there's two different attitudes there. The one who cares so much about, I just want to be amongst the faithful. I just want to do what the Lord asked me to do, but I, I keep putting myself in this position of thinking I'm not doing well enough. I'm not at it hard enough or something. That's the one who says, hey, rest. Jesus says, take it easy. Find your rest in me. Don't strive. Don't work so hard. But the warning is for those of you like, hey, I played along, didn't I? I sang your songs. I did your stuff. I gave some of my money. What is this business about depart from you? You've never heard of me. You don't know me. There's a, there's a, there's a, there's a slumber that is completely dead to the things of God. Maybe for some of us, you said, I don't think that's my boat. I don't think I'm rejecting the voice of the Lord, but I'm having an awful hard time keeping two feet in his, on his path. I'm lacking freedom and joy. I'm stuck in traps and patterns and they continue to eat my lunch and I don't know quite what to do about it. I, I appeal to him in the moment. I have this emotional reaction. I just want this to be behind me. And yet I find myself in the same pattern. Or maybe I'm just kind of drowsy, lethargic and bored of been down this road before. I can check off the boxes. I read my chapters today. I got through the Bible in a year. I've done these sorts. I go to my small group. I just plug in and I'm doing all these things, but it's not really enlivening me. It's not causing me to be as joyful as I would have anticipated. What do we do about these things? For all of us, the warning is to not hit the snooze button. If you are asleep, and I mean you're snoring and God's yelling at you, screaming at you, and you're just like, I'm not sure I'm hearing it. All you can do, if you're hearing my voice and you say, what do I do about this? You ask for the grace to believe. God in his faithfulness will will allow you to see, hear, and follow him. 
Lord, I don't want to be asleep anymore. I don't want to keep hitting that, 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 that snooze button. I know that you have more for me and I haven't opened up my heart and my life to it, but now I'm ready and I want to follow. All that I am, all that I've done against your name, I turn from it. That's what repentance is, is I'm, I'm dropping it. I'm not saying that I don't want to do it anymore. I'm not saying I still won't be tempted by it, but I just don't find any life in it. And I'm sorry for it. I know this is what puts you on the cross. And so I'm asking you to forgive me and be my Lord and Savior. That's all the sleeper can do. And watch him do everything else. If you're drifty, if you're saying, well, I'm one foot in, one foot out. Sometimes I'm all energized by it. Most of the time I'm not. Do the same thing. Ask for forgiveness. Repent of that and say, Lord, I know you have more for me. I don't know why I don't seem to find that in you, but forgive me. I want to find joy in the mercy and grace of Jesus. I don't want to make this journey about what I am or what I'm not, how good I am at this or how much I let you down. I just want to consume you. I want to know you. You'll take care of all my insecurities. You'll take care of all the things that I put myself down and feel unworthy and all the other buzz phrases that we throw out there. I don't care about my worth. I care about yours. Some boys were playing basketball and one of them was wearing contact lenses and as things were getting a little out of control, he got kind of popped in the eye or blinked the wrong way or something. One of the contact lenses fell out. So he stops the game and a couple of his school uh, teammates and stuff are looking around there trying to look for a clear lens on a bright floor. Having no success, the mom is sitting in the, in the bleachers going, what's happening? And then she kind of, she comes down and they're like, oh, we lost the contact lens. Finds it like that. Because, of course, moms, right? But they, later on after the game, the little boy says, mom, I don't get it. There's four or five of us looking for that. And we, ha- we knew right where it was, uh, where it fell, and we still couldn't find it. You found it just like that. She said, well, you were looking for a contact lens. I was looking for 150 bucks. <laughs> we can relate to that. You see how we keep kind of thinking like, I thought this Christian life thing would be more energizing. Dare I use the phrase sexier? I thought it would just be like this emotional experience where people would just be in awe about how close I am with my savior. And then I would get over my stuff and I wouldn't be beat up by it. And I would have my bills paid and I would have be able to present all of this as like, this is the Christian life. It's in balance and in perfect harmony. And that that lets us down. It's on our own strength. It's based on what we think is uh, what we think we need. Instead of looking for the worth of Jesus, and finding him every time. When we start holding high the value of Jesus, then we find him in our struggles. We find him in our persecutions. We find him in our victories. We find him in our easy days, our bad days. We hear his voice calling us out of bed. That's the worth that Jesus brings. And that's the pursuit that all of us have the opportunity to have in our lives. As we open our Bibles, we're not just doing it anymore to check off the boxes to be able to say, I want to be that disciplined Christian that's finally read the Bible cover to cover. That's a great endeavor. I encourage that too. I still do it. But I have to slow down sometimes and say, where's Jesus in this? Because he's dead in the middle of Leviticus. He's there in Deuteronomy. He's there in Joshua. He's there in all the Bible. Do I slow down enough because he's my worth? I don't, the check marks are one thing and that's great, but that's not really what I'm in it for. 
as I come together with my brothers and sisters in Christ on Sunday morning, I can expect to have things kind of laid out the way that they have been at faith. Or I might expect, hey, the worship team's going to really do a great job and I'm going to be able to sing with them and all this kind of stuff. I'm going to have my expectations. These people are going to be friendly to me. They're going to hear about if I have any troubles or any burdens of this week. I'm going to find a caring uh, ear. You might expect that, but if that becomes your motivation for being here, then it starts to sour and that experience starts to go away. Rather than because Jesus is here and he's come to meet with you and he's come to move through you for the needs of others, that's where his value lies. Let me close with just a a parable here that Martin Luther had come up with a long time ago. A parable of Satan on the throne and he's receiving reports from all of his demons that were coming and reporting their efforts to lead Christians astray so that they would gain more souls to their kingdom of hell. And one came and said, well, I encountered the Christians in the desert. So what I did was I loosed the lions on them and soon the sands were strewn with their mangled corpses. And Satan's response was, well, what am I supposed to make of that? Their souls were still saved. Another one's like, rookie. Hey, I met the Christians at sea and I sent a great wind and the ship obliterated on the rocks and all the Christians were drowned. And Satan says, you're not getting it. Their souls were still saved. And the last one comes and says, 10 years, I've been trying to cast Christians into a deep sleep and I finally succeeded. And that's when all the alarm bells in hell rang with celebrations and joy because they had been lulled into a sleep, believing that this place doesn't exist. There's not an enemy of your souls. Ephesians 5 says, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. As we're snuggled in our beds, under all those covers of all the temptations and the comforts of the world, we have to be mindful of the fact that real life is outside of those comforts. That our real calling to follow Jesus is one of often discomfort and challenge and pressure. But it's a glorious calling. It's one where fulfillment is found. It's one where true life happens. Let's not build a Christian faith or a Christian walk on the conveniences or comforts that we believe we need. Instead, let's just follow Jesus wherever he takes us through the good and the bad, knowing that he is our worth in the entire journey. Would you please stand? Lord Jesus, we come into this new year looking for you to be active and alive and moving in our lives, both individually and collectively as an assembly of believers, Lord, as a family in Christ. So, Lord, I pray that we would experience that corporate change as well, for sure. But I pray that each and every heart in here, Lord, would see that coming alive in you is the only true peace and safety and joy that we can find in this life. We have several challenges going on in the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We have, we hear of sicknesses and surgeries and despair and financial hardships, Lord. And instead of just praying for their relief, although we do, let's also, God, move in your people to pray for their growth, pray for your name to be promoted higher than any other name in the midst of tragedy and suffering. 
And in sharing their burdens, Lord, may we be preparing ourselves for those same calamities. Lord, you do such bigger things than we give you credit for. We, we only anticipate that perhaps you can alleviate our burdens. We sometimes fail to trust that you can build us up in them. So I pray, Lord, that this is a year of preparing for those things in the life of your people. We know that we thrive more in persecution and suffering than in ease and comfort. And if our goal is really to thrive in you for your glory, then we'll welcome it. So God, give us a new approach this year, but only do it by your grace. We might mean well leaving here and then fail in the first attempt, Lord. Only your strength can sustain us. So we give you our best efforts. We give you our fears. We lean on one another, Lord, that you provided for us so that we would be encouraged in this fight. Trusting, Lord, that you're the giver of all good things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.